everybody. Welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always. Episode 187. Kevin, we got to do something big for number 200. Some kind of celebration is in order. <laughs> yeah, it's not. We, we still have, what, 14 weeks to figure that out, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting a little ahead of the curve because, as I said last week, I didn't pay attention to the numbers. And now I'm excited to pay attention to the numbers. So I'm not I'm not saying we have to do anything extravagant. Just have a thought in your head about what we might do for number well, 200. But I think I think you need to to extrapolate and figure out when it's going to happen because by my projection that'll happen sometime around the new year. And so you may be finding that 2023 the first week of the new year may actually land on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. In which case we can have substantial fanfare where nobody will pay attention to it because they'll all either be going to a party or recovering from going to a party. So <laughs> I see. Maybe, maybe we better skip a week or add a week or something because we want that the land, like, you know, Groundhog's Day or something like that. I hear you. I hear you. Maybe we'll just do um, what governments do when we want to change the date on something and we'll just do it whenever we feel like. I, I think that's what you're getting at. And, I, and if so, I'm quite comfortable with that. Yeah, <laughs> but it, is, it is cool. It's it's fun that this is a long lived thing because, uh, as I've mentioned so many times before, the average podcast lasts twelve episodes, and here we are at one hundred and eighty seven, which is twelve times uh, eighteen. No, not really, because it's anyway. But, uh, it's a prime number, um, but we're we're going at it, and uh, and it's wonderful. We've got great listeners, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I look forward to this every week. Yeah, buddy. Well, let's get into our stories. So first up, to improve food security, President Biden issues initiatives to advance the bioeconomy. Next up, here's why researchers believe COVID shot mandates are fueling a backlash, undermining vaccine education. And finally, you have to prove the dose, why courts are rejecting payouts for exposure to alleged carcinogens. Really, really cool stories, and and at least the last one is something we don't talk about too much, Kevin, but let's talk about this first one with the Biden administration um, investing in biotech. Well, this is what I love about this week is that usually we have all these stories where we're trying to come up with uh, explanations around these doom and gloom prognostications, but this is a really good thing. So here's a, uh, it's from the White House press, whatever this is, uh, very recently, that actually President Biden has signed an executive order to launch a national biotechnology and biomanufacturing initiative. And I'm starting to not like this guy less. <laughs> never, I, I never was a big fan, but like lately I've been kind of going, all right, all right. And the best part is, is that this is an executive order. Okay, this hasn't had to, you know, be debated in Congress and all that stuff. So I'm kind of not liking executive orders. But if an executive order 
manages to cut through the BS of what we'd have to deal with by having, you know, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC weigh in on, well, you can't have any biotechnology around, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it Then this is a really good thing. And where this comes from is really the idea that it is absolutely clear that the biomanufacturing realm uh, enzymes, materials that come through fermentation, uh, material sciences from the plastics and other things that will come from degradable plastics and other polymers that it can be made in gigantic vats rather than from petroleum. This is real. And this is now, and other people are doing it. And other economies are getting to it faster than we can. And the funny part is, is that it's being done with American innovation that's winding up in places like India and China where they can manufacture it even cheaper. And so we end up buying back our own innovation that goes through the cheap filter of someone else being able to manufacture it at a lower cost. And this says, no, we're going to correct that. We're going to do it here. And the reason that this is a good thing is because that ensures the fidelity of the supply chain, keeps our technology in-house, means that American workers will be creating American products from American innovation. And in general, this seems to be a really good thing. It looks like $30 trillion, they say, in terms of total value uh, over a decade, over the next decade, which I kind of believe is true. When you look at material science, when you look at agriculture, you look at medicine, uh, this is where we're going. And this kind of initiative says <laughs> at least one person in the Democratic Party is really excited about possibly getting behind the idea of making sure this is a cornerstone of the next phase of economy. And, and I really am excited by this. I thought this was great. I agree. I think it's a good... Um indicator of where the winds are blowing so to speak you know so the fact that you have a, a u.s administration coming out and saying we need to get behind this technology is an excellent development that said i do have a couple concerns you mentioned one of them which is the executive order aspect which is basically a president saying i have this idea and now i'm going to sign a piece of paper that says that it's a thing and for something like this that seems cool because i don't think most people object to biotechnology but that can turn pretty dark pretty quickly. And there's lots of examples from history. But in any case, that was my first concern. The second one is that the Biden administration is also, oh, how do I put this? They seem sympathetic to some of the activist concerns that we're very critical of on this show. So we've talked about some of the restrictions they're implementing on pesticides. And they, of course, have, I don't know how far they've gotten in this, but they have been pretty strict in terms of what they want to do um, to mitigate climate change. And if that involves uh, restricting access to energy, that's going to be a problem because for all of these technologies, you know, like like creating food ingredients and bioreactors, when you're talking about uh, synthetic meat or lab-grown meat or whatever, it's very energy intensive. So if you're trying to uh, support technologies like that, but at the same time you're restricting access to energy, you might be offsetting the positive effect you're having or at least counteracting it to some extent. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I can see that point that you could be bottlenecking your own your own idea by not providing sufficient energy to be able to execute the plan that you have. I, I guess I see that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a strategic good move in, in this way. 
as you begin to see it, and, and I'm not like a, and so my voter registration guard card says an uh, NPA, no party affiliation. <laughs> I can't vote in primaries. I, I hold my nose when I go in the booth. I throw a dart at my card. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never terribly impressed with anybody. So I don't like talking about politics because uh, people on the right think I'm wrong. The people on the left think I'm wrong. Everybody hates the way that I think about things because I, I use nuance and I don't subscribe to every stupid thing in their party platform. Uh, I like little bits and pieces of both. And I also like the things that neither of them subscribe to, like acting with fiscal responsibility. Anyway, that's whole another thing. Oh, okay, I know. <laughs> oh, give me a break, right? This is crazy talk. So I'm, I'm not really excited with anybody in Washington, but I don't pick a team. And therefore, you know, I'm, I'm an outcast by anybody who has a team. But here's the deal is that now I see the political right or the Republican Party gravitating not only against climate and against climate change, but now starting to adopt ideas against COVID, against a vaccination, uh, more and more of this, and even genetic engineering now. And I'm seeing more and more right-wing uh, noise against glyphosate and against uh, genetic engineering. And some of the stuff like Epoch Times, uh, Alex Jones, the stuff that's far out on the right, political right typically, is now trumpeting those kinds of ideas. Uh, Fox News had Stephanie Senefon, and <laughs> she made Laura Ingram cringe. <laughs> that was <laughs> it. Was really funny. They couldn't get her off fast enough. Uh, we got to take a commercial break. We got a commercial break. We have a commercial right now. And I mean, it was they, they really stepped in it there. But the basic idea is is that by watching your political right adopt more and more crazy talk and now the political left saying we're going to accept these mainstream scientific ideas as part of our uh, platform and idea and i know this is an executive order this isn't a big party thing it at least says that there are elements of of that side of the aisle that suggest that a smart strategy is to start getting with the program and getting with the science and I kind of interpret it this way. I think that they've been listening to some pretty sharp folks who are saying, you know, now's your time to be the party of science. And that means abandoning all those knuckleheads who are against genetic engineering and the products associated with it. And, and, and I, I, I think this is a really good move. I, I, I was really excited to see this. It, it is encouraging. And I, and I think what's greatest about it is, and we've talked about this before. It seems that there's a very bipartisan nature to the sort of quackery that we talk about, Kevin. You know, so like I've seen stuff on Fox News that just drives me bananas. You know, I go to my father-in-law's house and that's all he watches. And the stuff that they talk about, it just drives me nuts. But but I see it everywhere, you know. So like last year, Stephanie Seneff got an article in the Washington Post about how mm -hmm. glyphosate was killing Florida's manatees. I'm like, what? Like of all the people you could get to write an article about manatees, you pick a computer scientist from MIT. What sense does that make? You know? So that's why I'm encouraged by this. And, and what's, what's also interesting to me is that, that um, like the, the plaintiffs bar, all these attorneys that file all these nebulous lawsuits we always complain about, they overwhelmingly support Democrats. So the fact that you're having an, an administration come out and say, technology is awesome, we need more technology, it's very, very encouraging because there is at least a, a significant portion of the base of that party 
and I'm like you, I'm not really affiliated with either of them, but there's a significant base of that party that is ostensibly anti-technology, or at least they're very, very skeptical of it. So I, I think this is a good thing. Yeah, well, yeah. Go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I had one oh, other no, thing. I, I stepped on you. Because um, I, I get excited because I've I've talked with representatives on Capitol Hill and in Tallahassee, and they ask a lot of questions about technology. And, and their staffers are awesome, and they ask really good questions about technology. And this is on the political right and left. And I've, I've made a lot of good affiliations in those capacities of people who just want to know more and are very honest in, in wanting to know more. And I, I really find it refreshing, you know, when a staffer sends you an email saying, if we change and to or, does it eliminate gene editing through CRISPR-Cas9? You know, when they're talking about what they're going to be writing into policy. And I think this is really exciting. And, and in a way, it, it seems like, uh, maybe the writing is on the wall and our politicians are trying to catch up. And uh, this is a case where the political left, which has been at least in the past, very sympathetic to genetic engineering, at least in policy, yet the folks on the left have been very against and have been very critical of their leaders when they've adopted policies friendly to genetic engineering. Uh, it's It at least seems that maybe we're starting to move this in the right direction, which no complaints there. 100%. The one thing I was going to add is that th they make a passing reference in this document to, uh, you know, lightening the regulatory load on biotechnology. And I really hope that happens because as we've discussed on the show, you have federal agencies that have a lot of leeway when it comes to these questions. So for example, the FDA is so obstinate on animal biotechnology that you have people that work um, in this field leaving the country, going to Brazil or going to another country that has a better regulatory environment because they at least have a shot of commercializing the products they're developing. In the United States, that's really not happening yet. I mean, the, the Aqua Advantage salmon was finally commercialized after more than two decades of hassle and lawsuits and, you know, political infighting and all this stuff. Um, so I hope that that happens because I think that's one of the best things you can do. You, you know, I mean, I'm like you said, I'm kind of critical of dumping a bunch of public money into stuff because it's really easy to say like everything's free for everyone free everything and free college and free homes like you can say that as a politician but making it happen is not that easy and so one of the things they could do is they could just make it easier to get these products to market or they could make it so you don't have to spend a decade getting a new crop trade approved in some cases and that would do a ton to unleash innovation you don't even have to spend a ton of money you just have to let people go to work I'm with you. And, and that's where I'll throw a bone to the Trump administration. And I'll say Project Warp Speed in getting all of the, <laughs> the worst name for a drug <laughs> for a drug discovery platform ever. <laughs> We're going to do it super fast. Don't worry about it. You know, um, but Project Warp Speed. And the, but the idea of at least getting the regulatory barriers out of the way and putting a ton of money into developing of that vaccine was a brilliant thing out of that administration. And you know, that was something that, that I, I, I wanted to high five the guy about was, you know, let's, let's do more of this kind of thing. And that is essentially what the Biden administration is doing here with this executive order is a agro or is a biotechnology warp speed. Uh, let's make this stuff happen and stop the onerous regulation. I spoke with Dr. Allison Van Enen uh, this morning. She's at a conference in Brazil and says Brazil is go is is the amount of 
animal biotech that's going on there is amazing. And you're talking about everything from tilapia to pigs to, um, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, they are they are working with biotechnology in other countries. This is something that obviously is setting off the alarm bells here in the States that while everybody else is racing forward, we are standing still and our policies need to change. And so this may be our first step in the right direction. I can just imagine the next USRTK investigation title Trump apologist Kevin Fulta praises Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> yeah, well, like it'll be right on it'll be on Source Watch right under my love for Jordan Peterson. Who I don't know anything about other than he sounds like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> So awesome. Uh, oh, I can't, I can't catch my breath. That's good. I, I think I, w- w- I, before we move on, the point to stress here is that both parties suck in different ways when it comes to science. And I think it's good to point to an, an administration that you may not like and say, hey, congratulations, you're doing the right thing in this case. So a round of applause, everybody get behind this initiative. And that's how you get things done that, that make the world a little bit of a better place. Yeah, broken clock is right twice a day. Booyah. Okay, next story. Why researchers believe COVID shots, excuse me, COVID shot mandates are fueling backlash. So, Kevin, this is a story that I wrote um, early early this year, and we've talked about this before on the show. I've written multiple articles being very critical of vaccine mandates, primarily because there's research that shows that they backfire. So if you mandate one shot, it pisses a lot of people off. And the next time you want them to get a vaccine, they go, no, because they're trying to reassert their autonomy. Now, I got some pushback from people who said, well, we don't have data on the COVID vaccines yet. So you're just sort of speculating here. And this is just your, you know, this is your ideological bias coming through. So I said, okay, fair enough. And sure enough, there's research coming out now. And not to pat myself on the back too hard, but a lot of this research shows pretty clearly that um, you just drive people who are skeptical of the vaccines deeper into their skepticism. They dig their heels in and they find new reasons to oppose vaccines. And more importantly, perhaps they find more reasons to oppose mainstream medicine and mainstream science more broadly. So it's not just about the vaccines. Now it's about, you know, uh, drugs. And now it's about a policy that may not even be related to COVID. It just becomes a reason for them to become deeply distrustful of the mainstream of scientific consensus in general. And so it's more of a long-term concern that I have because there are individual studies that you can point to and say, oh yeah, we mandated this vaccine and uh, it increased 12% compared to a country that did not mandate the vaccine. And then people look at that and they go, hey, see, mandates work great. But then when you look beyond the horizon a little bit, that's when the problems start. So that's why it was important to, to write this article and really highlight this research, I think. And I think you're right on. I think the idea of mandates, anytime you tell somebody you have to do this, you're going to encounter some sort of pushback. I remember even when I was a kid or was in my teens and I was planning on going, you know, out on Friday night and my dad would say, I need you to cut the grass tonight. You know, you got to do it tonight. And the difference I would say is like, well, tomorrow morning on Saturday morning, that grass is going to be just a little bit longer. Why don't I do it tomorrow? And he would say, no, got to do it tonight. Tonight needs to be done. And it was that kind of weird 
authoritarian, you know, stark fist of removal, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do that made me matter and resentful and angry that I had to do something that needed to be done. And it wasn't a constructive conversation about, well, let's talk about why tonight needs to be done or why it needs to be done tonight. And what are the consequences if it's done in the morning? Is there really something that matters? And this is where mandates fail. They come from on high and they don't discuss why they are necessary and not necessarily why you need to do this, but why it is important for us as a community to come together to solve a problem. And, you know, I knock religion all the time, but this was something that religion did really well was it got communities together to say, we're going to take this action together because it's important for a reason, a reason why we need to do this to protect each other, to protect our community. And so this is something that the psychology of a mandate really fails. What we need to be doing in these cases is building the trust of people around government agencies that say, here's the benefit for all of us if we do it. Let's do it together, like the war effort in World War II or whatever. It's a question of everybody sacrificing a little bit because it's exciting to sacrifice a little bit if we all win. And that's the part where they failed in COVID, especially around the idea of vaccinations. And uh, I think the going forward, it's a communication strategy that needs to be considered first. How do we roll this out in a way that everybody wants to participate? How do you get everybody excited about rolling up their sleeve? Because as a national effort, it cuts healthcare costs, protects the vulnerable, all that good stuff. It's when you put in the, here's what you are going to do now that makes everybody cringe and everybody want to push back. And, and that's just human psychology. They did it completely backwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's a couple of things I wanted to add. So as recently as July, 2021, you had the Biden administration saying publicly, uh, you know, it's not the federal government's role to mandate vaccines. We're not in that business. That's not our job. And uh, I thought, well, that's great. You know, that's a pretty sensible approach to take. This is a brand new vaccine. You know, all things considered, the technology, strictly speaking, is a brand new, but the vaccine is new. You have people that are a little bit uncertain. This is a good way to get them off the fence in the right direction. So that was fine. But then come September, you had the president going on TV and saying, you know, we've been patient, but you don't have a right to give people your COVID and, and you know, we're going to take away your job. You know, that was that was the big thing. A hundred million people were potentially going to be out of work if they refused a vaccine um, or they didn't get tested every week or every day, whatever it was. So you have this sort of like rapid transition from opposing positions. That was that was deeply concerning to me. But then you also had um this sort of insult culture where like anyone who was afraid of the vaccines or was skeptical, whatever you want to call it, it was okay to uh, attack these people publicly. And here's, here's my favorite example. This was Jimmy Kimmel on his show. I think it was last October. So he's talking about uh, treating people in hospitals based on whether or not they've been vaccinated. So this is his quote. He says, vaccinated person having a heart attack. Yes. Come right in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo, meaning ivermectin rest in peace, wheezy, you know? So you have this, I mean, that's kind of funny, but it's just so evil at, at the same time. You know, the fact that you could look at a fellow human being who 
needs medical care and you're saying, ah, you know, piss off, go die in a corner somewhere. That to me is just so strange because the whole idea between mass vaccination is to preserve life, right? So, so what you're basically saying is uh, you get this vaccine to preserve life or you can go die. <laughs> so, so I just, there's just so many things like this. And I mentioned earlier, there was a, a paper earlier this year in BMC public health and they went through all of the COVID policies and they said, here's where the public health establishment screwed up. And this is one of the points they made is that you had, you had very reputable people attacking average people on Twitter, right? The, the hashtag let them die was, was popular for a while. <laughs> you had, you had Jimmy Kimmel's comments, but you just had this, this sort of herd mentality where, where everybody gathered on one side. And if you disagreed with them, you were against the science. And then the other side said, you know, F off. I don't care about your science. Right. So nobody got anywhere. And I think that could have been avoided. And we now have the research to show that it could have been avoided had we just been a little more thoughtful in how we proceeded. Yeah, no, nobody responds to uh, to things. You know, you put a gun to their head and say, "Now give me your your most logical uh, science based conclusion." You know, you're you're you are literally have your finger on the trigger of emotion, and you're making people make decisions based upon bad. Uh, bad evidence and, and making decisions based upon gut feelings and things, which sometimes can be right. But what we need to be doing is appealing to the common values that are shared amongst everybody that gives us that warm and fuzzy. And that idea of, of a, you know, healthy nation protecting the vulnerable. I would, and I said this, you know, way back when I was advising companies on COVID vaccine strategy, um, you know, uh, you you got to go back to here's how we we work for uh, everybody together. You know, protecting the vulnerable, strong national healthcare system, protecting first responders, that kind of stuff resonates with everybody, and and really that's how it's got to work. So uh, if you if you want to impose them, <laughs> if you want a mandate, go to eHarmony. <laughs> I always liked that they called it mandate. Yeah, go to mandate. Yeah, go to eHarmony. <laughs> and it's like looking for a dude. <laughs> Online dating jokes. We got them. Those, those are the only mandates <laughs> that we should, we should, we should accept. <laughs> pretty punny, Kevin. It's pretty punny. Okay. Last story of the day. I really enjoyed this one, Kevin. We're talking about uh, courts rejecting uh, re ridiculous payouts based on bad science. Yeah, and this is this is a really important one because <laughs> one of the things I love, uh, we'll get to it in a minute, I guess. It, it really is an important one because what it says, and then the original story, um, again, I get to, to the original author here. Her name is Barbara Pfeiffer Billauer, and I wanted to send her an email based on her last comment. And we'll get to that in a second. So the article is about, you have to demonstrate the dose, not just that you were exposed to certain alleged carcinogens. And this is really drilling in on talc, asbestos, and some of the things we've seen there that really set the table for what we've seen with glyphosate and other uh, future cases of litigation, which are, I guarantee you, there's a, a mountain of them in the pipeline. You can't get billions of dollars from a, a non-harmful herbicide and not spawn a huge plethora of potential uh, litigation. So it, it, it's coming. So here we go. 
The thing about proving that something causes your disease is a tricky business. And it really boils down to negligence. And you have to show that a company failed to establish a, a, a causal link between this or between the defendants or you have to show that the, the defendant did something wrong if you're the company on the other hand you also have to show as a plaintiff that there's causation that the substance caused the problem and that can be really tricky because many substances that we deal with every single day from from having a beard is going out in the sunshine are potentially carcinogenic. So you have to demonstrate that there was a sufficient exposure and dosage that you were exposed to, that the plaintiff was exposed to, 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 to at least substantiate the claim that their problem is caused by this factor. And this is a big deal with mesothelioma. And we've seen the commercials all over the place. The sad part is, is that they're all um, actors. When you see that's an actor portrayal, actor portrayal of a guy with a lung disease, which is really, you know, freaking horrible. Uh, or or it, was, it reminds me of the guy with the Peroni's disease, like the bent penis commercial. Where the, <laughs> where the, the, guy, the guy who's in that commercial, who's, who's the patient, he's sitting on the table and like nodding his head. Can you imagine his IMDB page? <laughs> Play guy with bent dick, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, there's your credit. Um, I don't know if I can say that anyway. So <laughs> yeah, I'll that check was with me. the sensors. Let me check. Yeah, you're fine. Okay. Go okay. Ahead. That's good. Anyway. So <laughs> your IMDB credit was that guy. Anyway. So mesothelioma, this is a disease that's a, it's a type of cancer. It's an extremely rare cancer that occurs in a couple different ways. And you either can have a lung version of this, which they call plural, which is, which is meaning in reference to the, the lungs respiratory system or peritoneal, which is something in the abdomen. And uh, for the most part, this was always considered a disease that was specific to asbestos exposure. Um, and with that in mind, you never had to show dosage. If you had the disease, attorneys could argue, well, this obviously came from asbestos because this is the only place that it comes from. What we've seen with time is that mesothelioma can be idiopathic. It can just spontaneously occur. It can also occur in response to other types of uh, insults to the lungs or to the, or to the uh, peritoneum or to, you know, digestive system of peritoneum, ter uh, peritoneum, tium. And so now it really changes the dynamic of this discussion because it's not automatically ushered in as the cause to the problem that you have. And judges are starting to say, how do we know you were exposed to a sufficient dose to cause your problem? And ultimately, it's probably a good thing. I'm I'm hopeful that this sets a precedent because you have these cases that I hope will influence the way that that judges, you know, determine the sorts of evidence that are allowed in the cases, or maybe even the way that that juries vote when it comes to this stuff. But uh, she gives some some really interesting examples of the sort of expert testimony that that was allowed in these cases for decades, 
and it was garbage. It was really not good science, but it was for whatever reason, it just got through, but courts are starting to shut some of this down. So she gives an example. This is from one of the, um, uh, the talc baby powder lawsuits. And, uh, the plaintiff was a, a woman named Mrs. Nemeth. So, so, uh, so Barbara writes, Mrs. Nemeth claimed decades long use of the product in a small unventilated bathroom. One of her expert witnesses, a geologist, constructed a glove box and simulated exposures from which he concluded that she must have been exposed to thousands to millions of fibers, billions and trillions when you add up, when you add it up through repeated exposure. So, th- so if you need me to say this, everybody, a little box <laughs> doesn't possibly simulate what it's like to be in a bathroom using baby powder for, I don't know how many ever decades it, it takes to, <laughs> you know, so you just had these like one off N equals one experiments that are no longer being accepted. So all that to say, Kevin, I'm hopeful that this translate to this translates to other situations. Glyphosate is the obvious example, but you have other pesticides that are being dragged in the court. Like, um, atrazine might be one of them and of course you have different herbicides you know so i just hope this bleeds over and we stop seeing this crappy evidence presented to juries yeah that was the really exciting part of this she really started to drill into the idea of talc and you know this was one that just amazed me because when the talc thing came out i had really hard time understanding how this could cause when they were talking about ovarian cancer and other types of especially gynecological cancers and the connection just didn't make sense for me because, all right, I could see if you had like a respiratory thing going on, breathing in the dust over so long. And we know that there are, there are, and, and the thing that made this compelling to juries was that their talc is a mineral, right? This is something that's mined. You mine out talc and talc also came along with a rare form of asbestos. And so there's this stuff called tremolite, something called anthropholite. These are uh, types of asbestos that if you could say are contaminating talc that you're puffing on your baby's butt or you're putting on, you know, under your catcher's mitt or under your whatever, I don't know, you know, putting this on the undercarriage or whatever. It's, it's like, why are you, um, you may have some level of exposure. The question really starts going down to, is that level of exposure consistent with what we know can cause certain types of cancers? And that's where they really start to get into a problem. And as you say, to me, this makes it really exciting when you start talking about um, all of these other types of lawsuits that are coming around pesticides. And what really made me laugh about this is that Johnson and Johnson, they decided they will never use talc again in its baby powder that they're switching to cornstarch. (laughs) 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 And and guess what's going to be detected in that (laughs) cornstarch. So I wanted to send a note to the author and I tried finding her email and I couldn't find it, but, but essentially they're, they're, you know, Johnson and Johnson is essentially (laughs) trading one thing that doesn't really cause a problem, but you're getting sued over for something else that doesn't cause a problem that you will be sued over. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, on a more serious note, just for a second. She, she takes a little bit more of a cynical tone towards the end. And she says, you know, don't celebrate too much because the plaintiff's attorneys might just get better 
at collecting the kind of evidence they need to prove specific causation. Um, but I'm a little more hopeful than she is. I mean, she has years of experience as a litigator, so what the hell do I know? But from the outside looking in, what it seems to me is that they're not going to be able to show specific causation in these cases. You know, So like, if you look at the, the glyphosate lawsuits, one of the arguments that Bayer was making is that the time it takes for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to develop is a long time. And most of these people weren't exposed to glyphosate enough to, to explain that. I think that was the argument. I could be mistaken on some of the details, but that was the basic idea, right? Is that the exposure can't possibly explain the disease that you're attributing to it. So if you have, if you have judges and you have courts who are being a little more careful about the evidence that they're going to accept, I think it's going to be harder for plaintiffs to, you know, hire experts who, I, and I don't understand where these people's integrity goes. I guess it disappears when you write them a big check, but it's going to be harder to get people to make glove boxes with baby powder or <laughs> pesticides or whatever, because it's just not going to fly anymore. So I'm hopeful that that's the case. Who knows though? Well, but it really does sort out what is correct scientifically, you know, what matches our consensus and glyphosate is a great example. The, the courts are now finding more for the uh, defendants than the plaintiffs who have been claiming harm from glyphosate exposure. Because uh, the last example was people who came with a number of different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, when you say non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you're telling me what it isn't, not what it is. So non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you have Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then you got this other bucket called non-Hodgkin's, which are 28 different rare uh, lymphomas, which all have different origins and different reasons that they happen. Um, and many of them are idiopathic. And so when you're talking about specific, and they, they have gotten much better grouping them. I've read some great stuff on this lately that, you know, many of them do share common causal elements, but for the most part, if you have five plaintiffs that each has a different type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it makes the argument very difficult that one common element caused all of them. And that's why this last set of cases didn't fly. I think it was the first case in that series of cases. It was a young girl. I want to say she was 12 or 13 years old, and she got a very rare, and NHL is rare as it is, but she got a rarer type of that disease and the plaintiffs were saying, well, it was glyphosate because her mom used Roundup in the driveway and, and for her garden care stuff. And it, not even the jury bought that because they're like, wait a minute, the disease takes this long to develop. The girl is this old. How much Roundup was her mother using in the driveway? <laughs> was it, was it a slip and slide of glyphosate? glyphosate? <laughs> you know, so like people's common sense does work. I think it just takes time to connect the dots for them sometimes. And hopefully that's what we're seeing. Cause they've Bayer, I mean, has won multiple cases, um, you know, pushing back on these lawsuits. So I'm, I'm hopeful. F fingers crossed, I guess, Kevin, who are you following on Twitter? Well, let me just comment one last thing on that fingers crossed thing is that I feel really bad for the people who are suffering from cancer in these situations, because I really feel that they're being used by attorneys to be able to fortify um, a payout. And um, that, you know, it really, really bothers me because it, the bad science is exploiting people who are suffering. And, you know, we can go on all day about that, but, you know, I, I, I don't want Bayer to win. I don't want plaintiffs to win. I want 
this to stop. And I want people who are in need of urgent medical care to get the care they need and for their families to, uh, you know, suffer less because this is bad stuff. You know, as somebody with a parent who is in a semi-terminal position, I know what it's like to be, have the stress of dealing with that. And, you know, my heart goes out to these folks, but suing a company for something that isn't causing the problem is not going to make it better. And uh, I think it just makes things more contentious and goes all the way back to where we started. You know, it makes, it, it makes, creates divisions, creates arguments, creates problems between people, between issues that shouldn't be there. And gosh, there's so much more we could do with our other story, you know, biotech going forward where all the good things we could do get ignored because we're busy chasing around these really non-issues. So let me just, you know, get off my stupid soapbox at this point. What I would recommend people do this week is instead of following a certain username, follow the hashtag glyphosate. And let's make an effort to address the false information that's coming up around all of the recent papers and neurological uh, aspects of glyphosate um, effects. So whether you're electrocuting worms, feeding mice massive doses till they can't stand up from all the glyphosate they ate or, um, you know, whether it's in breast milk or not, you know, get in there and have these discussions and help push back against the false information. This is false information with an intent to deceive. And I think we all need to be there to fix it. And damn it, I am. And you can follow at hashtag glyphosate, hashtag glyphosate, get in there and push back a little bit kindly and, and uh, respectfully and be the good guy in that equation. So here we go. That's good, man. I, I, it was a couple weeks ago. It was a, some doctor. <laughs> Apparently there's a thing on, on Twitter. You can just call people NDs, not doctors when they pretend to be doctors. So there's one of these guys, he's a naturopath or whatever, but his name I think is Marty Friedman or something. Oh God. And Kevin, Kevin starts it. You know, I get on our, our organization's Twitter every <laughs> once in a while and Kevin just, Kevin comes in with, with like, it's like a silent shiv that they don't see coming. And he just very politely points out all the stupid <laughs> things they say. And then I just come in with a sledgehammer and I'm like, your article sucks. It's stupid. It's bad. And then it works though. It's like, you know, it's a yin and a yang kind of thing. And then lots of other people get into the conversation and pretty soon you have someone with a massive following who cannot explain what he just said. And so he backs out or he calls people shills or whatever, but it's beautiful. This is what needs to happen. You just salt and light on, on bad infections. That's what That's we right. need. There That's you go. Right. And follow me at silent, silent <laughs> <laughs> The cancel culture comedians recommend silent shivs. Um, <laughs> Go back a few episodes and you'll get that joke if you don't get it. Okay. I'm going to recommend this. This gentleman's been long deceased. His name was Murray Rothbard. He was an economist and a philosopher. Um, but the reason I want to recommend him is he wrote a very good book many years ago called The Ethics of Liberty. And this is where um, a lot of the material I got for arguing against vaccine mandates came from. He doesn't discuss that specifically, but he talks about in, a, in an abstract sense, where do our rights come from? You know, So when you say something like my body, my choice, why? You know, why does that make any sense? Why do you have a right to your own body? What does that even mean? And it's really good to think through those issues 
because it's very relevant to all of these discussions we're having. So it's just at Murray suggests. I don't know why they would do that. But in any case, it's M-U-R-R-A-Y and the word suggests. And then you can get all his stuff. Most of his books are available online for free too. So that's going to do it. Thank you guys so much for listening to us as always. Follow us as well at Kevin Fulta on Twitter. My writing is at ACSH org on Twitter and follow Genetic Literacy Project. They are at Genetic Literacy and the website is geneticliteracyproject.org. We will see you next week.